This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Thank you, Clement, for the introduction to our guest today, Ken Sadowski, or as Forbes dubs him, the Beverage Whisperer. If someone comes on the show and their nickname is the Beverage Whisperer, it's good to assume that this episode is going to be all about beverage. Ken was actually born into the beverage business. His grandfather started the beverage distributor, Atlas Distributing, and he was the first to distribute Vitacoco and also became the director of Energy Brands. Energy Brands was the maker of vitamin water, smart water, and fruit water, which they eventually sold to Coca-Cola for $4.1 billion. Now he's a beverage advisor to Verl Invest, which is Anheuser-Busch and Bev's investment arm. We discuss his story, what are the opportunities within beverage today, a trend in beverage that he's actually pretty bearish on, and how to identify truly great entrepreneurs. Without further ado, here's Ken. Ken, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I am fine, thanks. Happy to be in the Miami sun. Yeah, I bet. I bet. That's uh, uh, that's great. That's great. I've heard wonderful, wonderful things about, about Miami. I haven't been there in a long time. So why start from the very beginning? I know that your grandfather founded um, Atlas Tribune. It seems like you were... You've been in beverage or 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 the CPG space for your entire life, but what kind of was just because you kind of grew up in the business? Was that something that you always you thought wanted to do? I did. Uh, my grandfather was ahead of his time, and uh, what I mean by that is he was distributing alcohol before 1933, as it were. So <laughs> <laughs> he was he was a little bit ahead of his time. Um, but I always did like the industry. My father was a second generation owner of that distributing company. It's still there today. I'm just not there uh, as a part of it anymore. But I was there for 20 years and it was almost all enjoyable. That's awesome. That's great. So what was what was your particular role um, during your time, 20 years at Atlas? And where do you feel like maybe uh, it being such a you know, a company that was, you know, founded, you know, and working in the in the 1920s or or, or uh, and what have you. 
what um what kind of need to be like adapted or or thought about uh to bring into like 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 the more modern age sure well i mean i started in the late 80s and my father had taken on one product line called original new york seltzer and then i sort of developed the rest of the um soda division at my family business which was in central massachusetts and as all states have their nuances from the repeal of prohibition. Massachusetts had one where there was a no chain law. So for New York Seltzer to get into the kind of stores like the Safeways of the world and Kroger's, uh, they were regional and local at the time in Massachusetts. But I had to go knock on all those doors individually with the help of the supplier reps. But it was a whole new account base for that company, Atlas Distributing. So it was challenging in a lot of ways to have all these new customers, but it was also felt like having the sort of shackles taken off of my wrists because there weren't as many rules and regulations in selling New York Seltzer. And then sort of quickly thereafter, we became a Snapple distributor. So it was it was a great learning experience. It was an expansion of the account base for my family business. That's awesome. When when did you get into or how did you get into kind of advising um, brands? I, I'd imagine particularly on like they're on the distribution side. Sure. I would say that the pivot point in my career came when Darius Bykoff and Mike Rapoli from Vitamin Water asked me to join their board. And that was Vitamin Water. And it was really just a, uh, it was an honor to be on that uh, board. And I sort of felt like, I know I, I've used this example a lot throughout my career, but it's getting dated now. But it, it sort of reminds me in the end of what Larry Bird said when he retired from the Celtics. And he was at a big long table press conference with Red Auerbach, general manager, president of the team. Um, and you know, basically what Bird said was, don't tell Red this, but I would have played for nothing. Um, and I sort of felt that way with everything that I learned from the vitamin water experience. Um, it was, you know, a great reward, both uh, intellectually and monetarily. But that was the pivot point. That was when I left my family business and I had met the people from Verlinvest in the board meetings. And uh, that's kind of how I got to where I am today, for the most part, I would say. Got it. No, that's, um, that's really interesting. So what was what was kind of the, um, what was kind of part of the reason why you left the family business? Um, and I'd imagine that was probably a pretty hard decision to make. Um, and also, like, how did you even think about what you wanted your role to be? I know you've been an advisor for a lot of brands, but what does it actually also mean? Um, well, leaving my family business was definitely a tough decision, but there were three owners at the time. And when I left, there were two. So it wasn't really like a difficult transactional situation. It was more an emotional, you know, my grandfather started the company and, you know, what, what's, uh, who will carry the torch? Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of businesses that don't survive third fourth generation due to external factors. So this was just an internal decision that I made. And I made it rather, I would say, expeditiously, not capriciously, but expeditiously. 
So, and then I think the second part of your question was, what does it really mean to be an advisor? I would say with beverage brands, which is what I exclusively advise, I have just a, you know, an operational background, but I've always been interested in things that were sort of marketing focused. So the sales is more discipline and execution. The marketing is where I guess you use the the part of your brain that you don't necessarily have to as just a straight out operator. So I've been fortunate that one side I sort of um, like to do and the other side keeps me thinking and curious. And then there's also, obviously, there's a lot of other things that make a distributorship or a beverage company tick. But, you know, I'm not good at everything. I know my limitations. What what specifically, just thinking about these, um, you know, ways and obviously um, maybe your, your your superpowers or ways, ways you're helpful on the marketing side and, um, and on the ops side. For vitamin water specifically, what was it about that brand that and also, what was that brand when you met um, the founders of, of of Vitamin Water? Where were they currently, and, and what did you kind of see in that brand? What made you particularly like, excited about it? Well, you know, it was I guess intuitively or unknowingly, I was betting on the people because I had taken on Go Go Energy Drink from Darius, which had like Japanese anime way ahead of its time, like in the nineties. And then that didn't work. And this was in an, <laughs> in an era unlike today when you could just take out-of-code product and donate it to a food bank. Now they want to make sure that, you know, everything is in code and, you know, it's not, it's sort of, it is a different ballgame even in the uh, world of donations. But we donated GoGo Energy Drink to the Worcester County Food Bank, got in fruit water, which is by product composition, what Hint is today. So I guess in a way it's appropriate that I'm on the board of Hint Water as well because I'm a fan of that type of product. And Fruit Water was way ahead of its time also in the 90s. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then uh, when Fruit Water didn't work, uh, Darius basically said, we, we have one more that we have coming and we really like this one and it's called Vitamin Water. And so... I mean, if I, I remember what those first bottles looked like, um, and it was three flavors, and one of them was, I guess, kindly. I could say it was Mountain Dew color. Uh, if I wanted to be unkind, I could tell you it was sort of urine color. <laughs> and it was it was called Complex B, and we used to call it Complex P. But uh, <laughs> anyway... Um, yeah, that was uh, that was the earliest thing. So what I say is I really think I was the first vitamin water distributor because I was with Darius for previous iterations. Now, he had also created this water called Glacier, which turned into Glasso, which turned into Smart Water. But he was doing that more in the natural channel. And so for the DSD work, it was the Go-Go and then Fruit Water and then Vitamin Water. What were kind of some of the things, because you, you, you talked about how Go-Go was a baby a bit too early for its time. And flavored water obviously knocked it out of the park with vitamin water. But um, what was it about vitamin water in your mind, some of the characteristics and the brand that really, um, that allowed it to, you know, um, uh, be, um, to work in, in all, all different ty types of sales channels and 
um, you know, be what what Vine Water actually became? Sure. Well, what I would say is, first of all, it didn't work right away. It's sort of fits and starts and would work in some areas and not in others. And I mean areas geographically as well as classes of trade. So it was an interesting thing. And and really, in retrospect, one of the things that I've learned that I carry through today is vitamin water had patient investors because there were times when the brand didn't grow. There were a lot of years when it did grow, and then there were times when it didn't grow. And it was really up to the patience of the investors to watch Darius operate. And look, it wasn't just Darius. It was the team that he had taken in and Mike Rapoli drove that bus. So those were really the two driving forces. But then, you know, Rohan Oza came in later and was a really insightful marketer. And also Carol Dollard making the best flavors. And, uh, you know, uh, Mike Venuti gets a lot of credit as well because he had to manage the cash. He was the CFO. So that was really the five-headed horse, if you will, that uh, made vitamin water from a C-suite um, what it was. No, that's that's really helpful. Um, how how also, when you think about what what companies to take on as an advising role or as an investor role, what types of elements do you look for? What what types of I remember you 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 saying how it really starts with the founder and what types of kind of traits how do you kind of analyze um, maybe founders that, you know, could be really good operators and really have, you know, an incredible vision that um, not to say like maybe have an incredible vision, but maybe it's a little bit too early or later or, or, or what have you, but how do you kind of make decisions around who to actually, who you actually want to work with? Well, look, I mean, I've been fortunate because I can pick and choose the people with whom I want to work. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. But in terms of, you know, who that person is, he or she is somebody that is going to make their project work or die trying. And then in terms of the product itself, I get the most pleasure from working in white space. Like for the people that, you know, when I show them, hey, this is my new thing, and they sort of look perplexed and curious, I look at that as the personal challenge. So those are kinds of, you know, that that's where the reward is at the end of that process um, that, you know, if it's becoming a household name or more people go, oh, yeah, I remember that product. Um, so those are the those are the things that I guess I glean the most satisfaction from. Do you find yourself be a bit more thesis driven in in terms of, hey, I think that this, for example, is a white space and right now a pretty nascent space. Let me go and find who is the best entrepreneur building this space or or maybe it building the most compelling brand um, to your mind. Or do you or do you kind of like let the entrepreneur kind of educate you on a space that you're not really quite aware about? Well, I mean, if I remove the chronological component of what you just asked, what I would say is it's definitely the person over the product because there are a ton of examples that I could give you about entrepreneurs that showed me a deck and, you know, by the time the product came out or 18 months after the product was in the real world, 
they had pivoted and made some really insightful changes. So that's why, to me, it's um, the jockey over the horse, so to speak. But also, you know, somebody that knows when to be sort of contentious with their advisors and board and mentors and someone who, you know, has the adaptability to say, you know what, they've seen this before and I haven't. So while certain inputs have changed, i.e. time, certain core competencies still work today. That makes a lot of sense. How, um, since, you know, you're obviously picking the the jockey of the horse, because as you say, like pivots do happen. I've, I've heard some of your kind of case studies around certain pivots that, that happened with with some of your companies. And it was, you know, kind of the end of the day, betting on the founder, it's kind of the founder's company. But when you are deciding, since you're in such a great position where you can make choices on who and who you who you don't want to work with, what are some of maybe even like the questions or or ways you're able to kind of build that that confidence and conviction in the founder to um, that actually then makes it makes it interesting for you to want to work with that person? Yeah, I mean, I wish I wish I had a blueprint for that. It's sort of um, some of it has to do with my available bandwidth. Some of it is how we get along because there's got to be a lot of banter. I mean, it is a, a relationship in a way. So it's got to be something that I and they enjoy spending time on and with each other. Got it. Got it. No, that that makes a lot of sense. How also do you think around um, trends as well? Is a particular trend in beverage right now that you're that you're quite interested in? Well, I mean, I I always get surprised um, so, of the particulars, but in terms of the general, um, you know, it's it's better for you. And then, how does today's youngest consumer define better for you? And some of the ways that I really am amazed at certain things are like the way food technology enables things to get better. Sometimes it's better flavor. Sometimes it's better functionality. But in all these ways, it's just an ex- it's never not been an exciting time to be in the beverage space, but it's really an exciting time now. I mean, hopefully, I don't, I don't want to use the word post-pandemic, but um, emerging from the pandemic in whatever the new maskless masked world is. Um, I just think that there's a lot of fascinating stuff happening. No, that's, um, that's great. That's great. Um, I mean, um, I guess within, within kind of better for you, I mean, it seems like the consumer is obviously getting a lot more educated or, um, or, you know, particular about certain ingredients, um, that, uh, that's in beverage. Um, and, uh, and I mean, how, where, what are maybe like, is there like a couple kind of like nuances or trends that you're, you're particularly kind of, um, excited about currently? Sure. What I would say is that the newest manifestation of gut health to me is really important because I do think that if we as humans have a healthy microbiome, we can fight off a lot of sickness and or disease. But I think there's a lot of ways of approaching how one gets to the probiotic space. Like, I think there's a lot of sizzle around prebiotic. I'm not sure there's so much stake there. 
okay, so not not as much sold when it comes to prebiotics, maybe in drinks or at least like the current the, the current kind of wave of it. Is that is that fair to say? Fair to say, yes. Okay, cool. Um, um, that's that's interesting. How how also do you think when it comes to a beverage brand and you're looking at you know um, being an advisor to a beverage brand, we we we've seen some beverage brands raise huge amounts of money, right? Um, in the, in the past couple of years, um, and of course there's there's a lot of beverage brands too that are you know um, maybe uh, struggling to raise as um, struggling to raise or or only were able to raise um, a certain amount and have to be very kind of a, more, maybe much more efficient in terms of how they're actually spending their money. What does it make sense for a beverage company to actually raise, if they are able to raise like a pretty significant round um, and kind of maybe go national really early as opposed to, all right, let's actually start off regional, see how our velocities are regionally and kind of then, then kind of expand to different regions, kind of maybe like one brick at a time per se. Sure. Well, in general, I'm an advocate of the latter scenario that you um, outlined. Um, the caveat to that is, you know, if it's a natural product, one can go to some of the influential natural national retailers, i.e. Whole Foods and Sprouts is getting more nat uh, national uh, or at least beyond a regional footprint, I would say. And then, of course, you know, one of the outcomes of the pandemic was the direct-to-consumer e-com component. So if a brand can really delve into the data and slice the data in such a way that they can see geographically where their product is doing well, that's another sign that, you know, there's permission to go maybe faster, I guess, speed or alacrity. But generally, I believe in the you know, you build it sort of one region at a time and go deep in that region. Because if you can make your mistakes of early onset uh, distribution, then those are the things that help you as you get to be from a local to a regional to a national brand. So that that's, you know, that's one of those core competencies that has worked in my mind uh, for all of the brands that I've been a part of. So kind of going very deep, maybe in a particular channel or focusing on maybe one channel or focusing on one region per se, rather than trying to go maybe off the bat, out, out the gate, maybe raising a lot of money in order to do so. Is that is that roughly right? There are situations where there's not one playbook for every brand, but what, you know, it's it's, I guess, I think of several companies that have been successful and they've had co-founders and one of the co-founders runs the business, leads the team. And the other one is more a cerebral type of founder. And they go out and um, shake the money tree, as it were. And so when there's a scenario that works like that, um, what I find is it's better to just raise the money that you need for 12 or 18 months and then you know go back and do it again Obviously, presumably you've proven your thesis and what you've raised that money for. But if you go out and raise too much money too quickly, the founder or founders wind up with less equity in their business. And then at some point they've, you know, raised money to the point where they're just, you know, the janitors holding the keys and the founder. That's not a healthy scenario either. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a great point. I think also too that. You also have to think as well, 
what's maybe the the exit not that you should be thinking about this at the early stages but 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 what ultimately are, is kind of the exit potential for the company too right like if you go out and raise you know a lot of money um but you know a successful healthy you know beverage a really good beverage exit we could be like you know um half a billion you know 500 million or 400 million or whatever or 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 what have you which is you know a great outcome um I mean, I mean, you've also been involved in billion dollar outcomes. So those are, of course, unbelievable outcomes. But, you know, if that's kind of like, like the typical successful exit, then you also have to be thinking, okay, if I don't, I, I have to make sure I also like don't, you know, over raise per se, because then I can actually put my company in, an, in a very awkward spot. Sure. I mean, you know, the, the success in an exit gets defined in a number of different ways. Um, but yes, for the most part, you want to be as, careful as possible as the founder entrepreneur um, company directors have a fiduciary responsibility to do the right thing for all shareholders. And with beverage, it is expensive to raise, you know, the marketing needle. So there are big buckets of money that can be used, but it doesn't apply to all beverage companies. So again, it's sort of to me, it's prudent to just raise what you think you need to get into, you know, the next 12, 18 months and then go about it again as long as you're executing on your plan. Earlier, you talked a bit about what made Vitamin Water also pretty successful was the team around Vitamin Water was also pretty patient. It wasn't just kind of this success out the gate, overnight success story uh, they did have maybe some some periods of of flat of maybe uh, of being flat or you know not not kind of growing at like the the, uh, the the degree that you would think. As an advisor, what how do you think about patience? Like when um, I know we we talked about in terms of the fundraising uh, perspective of only raise as much as you kind of need to to get by for the next you know, year, two years and what you're, you know, where you believe that you can be for the next two years. How also do you think about patients? And if you're in a, if you're advising a brand that maybe off the gate, maybe their velocities aren't kind of performing the way that you thought they would. Well, look, I mean, if velocities aren't where they are, aren't where they're supposed to be, then maybe you didn't invest in the right brand or the right founder or the right project. Um, I mean, it's something, but look, I've had those too. Um, but uh, but I think you know people that uh, know me and have heard me do these kinds of uh, interviews know that one of my favorite uh, axioms or adages is I guess it's not an adage it's not I'm not that old yet but um, some things are on goal frames not timelines and that's why the type of money that entrepreneurs take founders take in is really important because like for Verlinvest, they're very patient. You know, they are not on a clock of, hey, it's 60 months in, we need liquidity. So those are some of the nuances that it's incumbent upon founders to find the right money. Like first they have to find money. Then as they get better, it's really important to find the right money. I think that's a great point in that also, when founders are fundraising, know what the investor timelines are as well, right? That when actually do you kind of want to put your money out or um, or, or what have you in the business? And, you know, if it's on a shorter time frame, then, you know, because as, 
you know, um, as maybe you say, and, and also other, um, um, other investors um, and advisors that I've had on the show, you know, say, you know, like a brand is built over, you know, a de- it, it could take a decade, it could take 15 years, it takes a long time to build um, a CBG brand. And so also, you know, kind of asking that question of when you actually, um, um, your kind of trajectory um, as an investor, I think that that's also really important. Yep, I agree. How also, like we, we've seen, of course, a trend in, um, in beverage for, you know, I mean, I mean, a long time, but uh, but it seems like every every kind of celebrity has their own beverage brand, or, or there's a lot of you know celebrities that uh, that are kind of partnering with founders and maybe being like the spokesperson for the for the brand. But of course, it's it's an exchange for for equity. What are your thoughts? Um, and when would you, if you were advising a founder, albeit every case scenario is is different, but when would it make sense to have maybe a celebrity partner or or someone with with influence as part of the brand it's a it's a good question and you alluded to the answer in that it is a case by case basis <laughs> so i could say you were i could say you were leading the witness but it's where i would have gone regardless so um anyway what look the the what I would say is there are components that I always see that I like. They don't always work, but I always like them. One of the things that I like is when the celebrity approaches the brand or the founder because they either met the founder through their network or they are using the brand. So those are the most natural um, ways of doing those relationships when it's, you know, a big, uh, talent agency approaching a brand saying, you know, here's our money bag. If you give us a big money bag and then we'll give most of that money bag to the celebrity, that's not the way these things typically pan out in a positive direction. Um, The second thing I would say is a brand has to be of a scale where they can take advantage of the celebrity endorsement. Like, you know, if you get a real A-list celebrity and people are willing to go out and put dollars behind celebrity A's, you know, carrying this bottle or can of your product, you darn better be in 50,000 supermarkets and Walmarts and because otherwise you're not going to be able to monetize, even with e-com, DTC, all that other stuff. You have to be ready. You have to have systems in place if you're really going to sign some monstrous celebrity. So what I know that you said 50,000 stores, but uh, but what what kind of do you feel is kind of the minimum? Um, because I, I see founders like early stage founders, um, you know, um, that are interested in, you know, having maybe a celebrity involved in, in the company and what have you. But to your mind. Um, because you're, you're saying it has to be a, kind of a more established, maybe, um, uh, not kind of early, but more in the growth stage company, but what does that kind of mean? Like what, what tangibly in your mind is kind of the minimum you have to be in order for again, case by case basis. But, um, but, uh, for your mind, like what, what kind of makes sense? Well, again, it's the caveat to what I'm about to say is it really is a case by case basis. And the other thing that I would say is. If you were in a non-ready-to-drink format where you could ship, you know, light packages all over the place, 
Um, like I think about a stick format of a powdered whatever ingredient. Um, but I still think you should be at a, just pick a number, $25 million dollar um, or, you know, it might be just like, let's call it a one or two or maybe even three million case brand. Are you also advising companies? I know obviously you are the, the beverage whisperer, but are you also advising companies that are outside of beverage? And if so, what has been, you know, the biggest learning from you um, um, with, with that category? Well, I mean, well, first of all, my my friends would tell you that, you know, after about 7.30 at night, I turn into the beverage mumbler because I've been drinking. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, what I, I guess what I would say is I have had my proverbial head handed to me when I've strayed too far off of beverage. I've invested in snacks. I've invested in some other things. And it was before I had the thesis of you better bet on the people. Like there were just brands. And then I, I sort of tagged along with other savvy investors, but we didn't understand what we were doing. I didn't understand it. Therefore, I couldn't be as helpful. And I don't want to say I was scorched earth because I would do it again. But I've, I've in investing in non-beverage, I've learned what not to do more than I've learned what to do. Okay. So, okay. That's, um, that's, that's great. That's great. Um, what, um, what's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally? Hmm. Um, okay. Well, I'm just going to go to my, my recent past, I guess. I really liked, uh, Phil Knight's shoe dog. Um, Really, and that's you know, I I'm a basketball player and a big basketball fan, so that sort of crosses a bridge of personal and professional. And then I guess being a Tulane alum, I've been aware of Walter Isaacson for a long time, and both his book on Steve Jobs that I really found fascinating. But during the pandemic, I thoroughly enjoyed the Code Breaker. Um, in fact, I bought a bunch of them copies for other people um, and handed them out to people. And it's a it's a thick thing. I'm sort of glad I did it on Audible and Kindle, but uh, but it was a great book. No, I I appreciate these. Um, Shoe Dog is our number one uh, book that's been recommended um, on this show. Um, and also, we have a couple of people that that talked about Walter I uh, Walter I. Isaacson's book on uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, so um, that's that's great. Yeah, the, but just to just to um, I guess add to that, uh, the Codebreaker is the book that he wrote about uh, Jennifer Doudna when she had won the Nobel Peace Prize for I'm going to get wrong the discipline of science, but she basically was working on mRNA um, after you know she she trained on both coasts like. Harvard and Stanford kind of thing. And she started on DNA and it was a Harvard professor, I think named George Church, who said, you know, RNA is really the workhorse. DNA gets all the credit. RNA does all the work. And of course, mRNA is the um, piece of our recent history, very prescient, 
in finding the you know vaccines for COVID nineteen. Wow, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. I definitely need to add that to my uh, uh, to my book list. Um, what um, I guess back back to beverage, and I I uh, I know this is probably a difficult question to answer, but what actually needs to kind of cross over to kind of go from um, cause you know, there's so much opportunity and kind of better for you, which I know is, you know, uh, uh, where a lot of investors and advisors are, are paying attention to, um, what in your mind, since you've advised and see so many, uh, brands that have been able to do this, what are elements of a brand that actually, that, um, that need to maybe exist, uh, to actually go from the natural channel into actually conventional grocery? Sure. Well, I think there, when a brand really does a good job of identifying their earliest consumers, um, I guess the core consumer, that is, you know, where is that consumer going to discover the brand at retail? It can be discovered, obviously, through all forms of social media and that kind of thing. But as it gets done in that natural channel, let's just say, then when a brand succeeds in crossing over to the more consumer, that's when you get into traditional retail. Now, that timeline or goal frame volumetrically has accelerated because there are certain national retailers that now don't want to have the natural people taking all the credit for building these brands. And yet there are other giant retailers that say, look, we're not going to build your brand, but we're happy to pour lighter fluid on it, sort of. We will be the accelerant that takes your brand to the next level. Once you prove to us that you know why your product is selling, that involves, again, core competency things like where does it go in the store positioning? What's the price that consumers are willing to pay? And then making sure that it has point of sale. So what I call my three Ps, pricing, positioning, point of sale, all of those things have to be in place. And then you've got a successful recipe. And then, of and obviously, as you say, you need like, you need to have that retailer on board. Cause it seems like, it seems like when it, when it comes to conventional, you know, like Walmart's becoming a lot more interested in Target and some of these more big box retailers in terms of actually bringing in, um, better for you brands, you know, earlier. Um, when, when do you think it, um, but sometimes you might be, even if you see Walmart calling or, or, or target calling, it might actually be too early for your brand to actually go into their stores. When do you think it actually maybe makes sense to actually introduce conventional as like, uh, as part of your sales mix? Sure. Well, I don't want to say that those bigger retailers are more sophisticated, but what I would say is generally they're less tolerant and more velocity driven. What you don't want to do as a brand is go into a store, not have raised enough money or gotten the recipe down for your brand to succeed and then fail in those big stores because you never get a second chance to make a first impression in those stores. Therefore, it's really incumbent upon a couple of things that we spoke about earlier. One is having that 
local to regional strategy and getting all of those components down so that you can speak to the largest retailers and say, here's where we will succeed. The look of the leader is these four things, and then we have a really good chance of succeeding. And conversely, as a brand owner, there are times when you have to tell, you alluded to Walmart, mentioned Walmart, you have to tell the world's largest retailer, like we, we're not going to tell you no, because we're not stupid, but we can, we can tell you not now because we don't have all of the ammunition that it's going to take to succeed in your stores. Yeah, no, that makes um, that's a great way to also kind of position it to the biggest retailer in the world. So, Ken, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. Great stuff. And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Ken and hearing his thoughts about beverage. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So. Now, do you have to be an a, uh, accredited investor in order to start um, angel investing or or if you're interested in, in setting up an account on Bobin? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. So if you want to be a lead deal maker uh, who you know has on one side deal flow, on the other side, a network of investors, and you're kind of merging those two together using an SPV, you don't necessarily need to be an accredited investor. Anyone can, you know, create a deal. Uh, if you are investing into, you know, uh, a high risky venture capital investment, you do have to be an accredited investor. Uh, and this is predominantly due to, uh, you know, protection by the regulators to protect, you know, a retail investor investing a large portion of their net worth into a, a very risky asset. Um, accredited investors in the U.S. is roughly anyone who earns more than 250k on an annual basis, or have you know a net worth of over a million dollars. Yeah, no, that, no, that's helpful. So if you did want to um, experience, um, you know, get involved and in, in diversifying um, your own um, um, your uh, your asset pool in terms of what you invest in, and 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 think that alternate investment startups might be um, interesting to you. Even if you're not accredited, um, you could actually start doing SPVs if you wanted to. If you're kind of the lead deal maker and actually pool um, all the money together, is that is is that roughly right? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of people in the VC ecosystem uh, who has, on one hand, access to deal flow, and on the other hand, uh, you know, access to a bunch of net uh, investors. Um, you know, an SPV works extremely well trying to bridge those two together. So we have clients who are, you know, ex operators or ex-entrepreneurs who've worked in the industry for quite some time, built out their network, built out, you know, their founder communities and things like that, um, and want to, you know, monetize off some of the deal flow that they, they have in hand. If you are loving the show, I highly recommend checking out the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. I'm also doing some more events, so you'll also be the first one to receive information about those. 